Good morning. I was thinking that these are, these are very sacred moments, and um, whether we're singing or praying or studying the Word or whatever we're doing, God is at work. His Holy Spirit, who lives within us, is uh, convicting us of sin and reminding us of what is true and giving us vision for what life could be like in Him. So... Um, I just, I hope that we're all paying attention to that and even expecting, coming in here expecting that God would do something very significant uh, in our lives. I want to just remind you, we've got sermon notes and we just, we mention this occasionally, Jeff and I do. Um, You may not be a note taker, but as I think about this year and our focus on connecting upward with God and cultivating a rich devotional life. I know for me, my devotional life often springs out of like notes that I might take in a setting like this. So I I hope that you don't think that notes are just something that you do today while somebody's talking just to kind of keep your mind occupied and then you just set them on a counter somewhere when you go home. But this can actually be something that you can go back to again and again and again and uh, invite God to speak to you through that. So we've got sermon notes online. Those are available at our website as well. So I hope that you'll go there. And then last week, we also gave you guys some journals and some stickers. Uh, Kevin said earlier, it sounded like we were in third grade again. We got our little stickers going. Um, but those stickers are really meant to remind us of what this book is inviting us to do, and that is to draw near. Draw near to our Savior that we were just singing about. So um, those journals and stickers are available on a table out in the lobby if you want to grab one, if you haven't gotten one already, or if you want to get one and give it away, whatever. Uh, Hopefully all of that will be an encouragement to you. Um, I know this is no news to you, but um, there are a lot of people that are renouncing their faith. And especially we see it on social media with celebrities and high visibility folks and uh, people that are revising their faith, some deconstructing their faith. And as I thought about that, um, certainly I don't want to, I don't want to look at it as if, well, that can never happen to me. I'm, I'm above that. I'm beyond that. But, but I do look at that and I think, I, I wonder what it was. What was it that caused that person who at some point in their life, they professed faith in Christ and they believed with all of their heart that they understood the gospel, that he had died in their place, that he had transferred them from death to life. They believed that. And then they walked accordingly for some period of time, but then somewhere along the way, it just ran out. They just came to a place where they're like, yeah, I just, I just don't know that I buy that anymore. And so the question I have is, it's in your notes, why do Christians abandon the faith? Why, why do we do that? And I don't think it's a mystery. I think there are some really good reasons not to abandon your faith, but for understanding why people get where they are. The first thing I thought of was friendly fire. 
Think about the woundedness that people have experienced either in just close relationships or perhaps with a church or a small group or a leader or whatever, but somewhere somebody hurt them deeply and they attached that hurt to their faith and it eroded it. Personal loss, all kinds of loss, right, in this world. And that can, that can really take a shot at someone's faith if they are not prepared to think about that rightly. Relentless doubts. Everybody has doubts. But some of those can, can kind of find fertile soil and they can take on a life of their own and they can plague us in significant ways. Craving for prosperity. There is something very alluring about money and stuff, possessions. Uh, those are so enticing that the Lord said, life is not found in the abundance of your possessions. And yet, we crave it, don't we? We feel so fragile, so vulnerable, and if we just had enough, we might not feel that way anymore. That can take your faith out Persistent sin, and what I mean there is we all sin. We're told to repent, confess, address, bring that to the Lord, turn from that back to the Lord like we're told to do all that. But persistent sin, it can be such a fight that a person can finally say, I just don't think it's worth it anymore. And they cash in their faith so that they can go after whatever it is that has captured their heart. And then lastly, cultural pressure and persecution. We're seeing that in a very big way. Social media has certainly fueled that. And uh, that pressure can be overwhelming in a, in a social culture, right? And then, I, I don't know that we really experience persecution um, in a profound way, but uh, when you start losing stuff for your faith and people are coming after you because of what you believe, uh, that is certainly an opportunity to, to count the cost and decide, gosh, is it worth hanging on to what I say I believe? I don't know which of those may apply to you. Um, I think in all of my Christian life, I can, I can apply all of these those, those places where it was really hard to continue walking in what I believe. I know this was true of the first century church. And I know that what we're going to talk about today and for the foreseeable future is intended to help us think about all of those threats in a fruitful way. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 13 says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation." This book is meant to exhort you in walking with all of this, all of these pressures, all of these strains, all of these hardships. This book is intended to help you and I hold fast to our faith, even while we are bombarded with every imaginable thing. Uh, last week, Jeff introduced us to this book and to the theme of this book, and this is really the antidote for all that ails us 
when it comes to these hardships, and that is the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. The supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And I would argue you need to think about both. They go together, as I hope you'll see uh, later this morning. Um, just by way of review, um, some of you may, maybe weren't here last week. I do encourage you to go back and listen to Jeff's introductory message. But we found out that this book, the, the Letter to the Hebrews kind of at the back end of our New Testament, um, was probably written somewhere around 68 AD. We do not know the author, although there are plenty of people who have uh, suggestions about who that might be. The audience is primarily Jewish, although it's not limited to that, but we know by the way that it is written and the assumptions that it makes, particularly around the rituals of Judaism, the nature of temple worship and elements of uh, Jewish worship. All of that assumes a Jewish audience. We saw in the first three verses a theme that will carry on throughout the entirety of this book. Jesus, uh, Jeff mentioned, Jesus is better. That's just a good, simple, layman's way to understand this book. If you don't get anything else, you got to get that. Jesus is better. Always. All the time, every day, Jesus is better. Specifically, we learned in verses 1 through 3 that he's better than any revelation of God preceding his arrival on earth. Jesus is our best means of knowing what God is like, and we're told specifically why in verse 3. He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You might think of that phrase as a teaser. There's a whole lot there, way more than those words can contain. But that's what we're going to be exploring over these next several months is why Jesus is better in the sense that he is described there. These realities do speak in a powerful way to all of the threats that we face in a broken world. Now, if you think about the book as a whole, I want to give you two big uh, chunks that you can... Uh, it just helps to categorize things. So if you uh, were to look at Hebrews 1, 1 through 10, 18, that's a big block, a very big section. Um, and that section is doctrinal. Essentially, what we're being told is what we need to know. And there are a lot of things we need to know if we're going to walk faithfully with God. So that's the first section of Hebrews. Then the second section begins in chapter 10, verses 19, and then goes through 13, 25, through the end of the book. And that is practical. That's what we need to do in light of what we know. Again, that's a very simple description of the book as a whole, but those can be helpful to kind of find your way in this letter. Um, there are five warning passages. These are some of the more uh, well-known pieces of Hebrews. It's like people can not know a whole lot at all about Hebrews, but they know there's some really scary passages in there somewhere that are kind of unsettling. 
Um, I want to mention those to you. There's one in chapter 2. There's one that bridges between 3 and 4, another in 5 to 6, and then chapter 10 and chapter 12. I want to offer a different word for you to think about those passages. We typically think of them as warning passages. We think of them as saying, you better not cross the line because if you do, you're going to pay. That's how we typically read those passages. I want you to think of those as an exhortation. Remember, that's what the writer of Hebrews said about his letter. I'm writing to exhort you, which means what I'm trying to do is say, you know, there's two ways to live, generally speaking. There's a path that leads to life, and there's a path that leads to death. And what I want to do is I want to point to the path that leads to life. I'm just trying to tell you that there's certain things that you, you do that will cut your legs out from under you. But if you'll follow in this path that's being provided for us in this letter, you're going to find life and fruitfulness and peace and joy. So I hope that you can think of those passages. We'll obviously study every one of them, but think of them as exhortations. Uh, generally, just this is a great resource. We talk about it all the time, but rightnowmedia.org. Every one of you has free access to this platform. There are tens of thousands of, vi of videos that are there, conferences, Bible studies, everything under the sun. If you will go to rightnowmedia.org and you will type in the search, how to read Hebrews, this chart will be awaiting you. I'm obviously not going to go through it now. It's about eight minutes long, but that is a fantastic summary of the entire book. It kind of puts the entire thing together. And charting is really helpful just to follow the path that the writer is leading. So you can also just type in Hebrews, and there's some great studies, some great messages there to help you in your study of this book. All right? Well, at the risk of oversimplifying one of the most complicated books in our Bible... I want to offer you a phrase to help you think about this book over and over again. And here it is. Since then, let us. Since then, let us. That kind of ties into that idea again of knowing and doing, right? There are two passages in particular, and again, we'll study these in detail, but I want to read them to you because this is the heart of the writer here. Uh, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, listen to this and listen for that phrase. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect. He has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Then if you go forward to Hebrews 10 19 through 23. Remember, that's the beginning of the second section of Hebrews, really focusing on a practical application of what has been learned. He writes, Therefore, brothers, 
Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great, high, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. Since then, let us. Now, sandwiched between these two passages, the author actually tells us the point that he's trying to make with this letter in Hebrews 8, 1 and 2. He writes this. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. I love it when an author does that. I'm like, don't make me guess. Just tell me. I'm slow. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. This writer wants you to know that your Savior is in heaven, securing a place for you that you will enjoy for the rest of eternity. And he alone is the one who can do it. So you can trust in him. Hebrews is intended to strengthen the faith of those who read it. And the writer does this by explaining how far Jesus surpasses the best of everything that we know of in our world and in our experience. That explanation begins with a contrast between Jesus and angels. Um, now, I don't know what you know or think about angels. And you may even wonder, honestly, as I did, like, what's the deal with angels? Like, why would that be the place that this writer would start? It seems like there's so many other things that he could talk about. And he begins by comparing Jesus with angels. In fact, he's saying that Jesus is superior to angels. Now, you need to know, angels, that's not the point. <laughs> that's not the focus. It's just a comparison in order to advance that idea again that Jesus is superior and sufficient, right? So, let's think for a minute about angels. They are awe-inspiring creatures with enormous power and knowledge. They're not omniscient, they don't know everything, and they're not omnipotent, they're not all-powerful, but they've got a whole lot more going on than we do in that respect. They're often found speaking on behalf of God and spectacularly carrying out His will. Think about all the stories about angels throughout our Bible. It's pretty mind-blowing, isn't it? Angels appear in different forms, and they're often associated with things like fire and lightning and smoke and holy worship. Write down Isaiah 6, and you'll get a, a glimpse at some angels there. They're entrusted with varying levels of authority and are even given combat assignments. They're warriors. The little cherub thing, you know, that we typically see, I just kind of forget about that, OK? 
Okay, I don't, I don't know that that really applies to biblical angelology. Angels were and are revered by all who believe in them. If you saw an angel, I feel very certain that you would go to your face in a matter of seconds. They are awe-inspiring. They strike fear in even the most courageous hearts. And yet, with all that they have, they are still inferior to God. Now, humanity has often been prone to worship angels, and they will say, not me, him. So, it's, it's sort of the closest thing that we can get to God, but they're not God. They are inferior to God. They actually serve God and humanity. What the writer is trying to do here is to help us see that we know a little something about angels. We've got a lot of information about Jesus, but one thing is very important to remember, that he is superior to them in every possible way. In fact, they are subordinate to him. They serve his will and his purposes. The writer of Hebrews starts at the top of the created order, and I I don't want you to get confused here. We bear God's image in a way that angels do not. And that's something pretty amazing. I, I would say angels are fascinated by that. But from, from in terms of attributes and what they're able to do, they supersede us. They, like they can fly and disappear and, you know, call down thunder and lightning and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so let's look at this comparison that, that the writer of Hebrews is making with Jesus and angels. And he begins with the name of Jesus. Jesus has a name like no other. Look at verse 3. Uh, halfway through the verse. After making purification for sins, he, that is Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, Today I have begotten you, or again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So let's break that down just a little bit. And I want to start by saying, don't run past that first phrase. It's it's a little bit interesting that it's said so casually after making purification for sins. It's sort of like, yeah, I mean, Jesus was bored one day and he made purifications for sins. And then after that, he went and sat down next to the father. Well, that was his whole reason for coming. He left the glory of heaven, took on flesh, dwelt among us, laid down his life in a humiliating death so that your sins and mine could be covered and forgiven and we could be secured in a relationship with Almighty God. After making purification for sins, something that only He could do. No angel is able 
to do that for us. After he fulfilled that purpose, it says Jesus sat down. Now think about this. This is a little foreign for us, but kings sit down. Servants, just the common folk, they stand or kneel or bow in the presence of the king. But the king sits down. And, it, and we're told he's sitting in a place of honor at the right hand of majesty. And that would tell us that if, if the son is sitting with the father, then they have an equality about them. They're not exact. You know, there's a distinction between father and son. But they are both equally God. Or Jesus couldn't sit with the father. Because no one sits with the father but God himself. God the Son. Now that name or title Son, that reflects the superiority that Jesus possesses over everything. And the the Father is communicating an affirmation here. Uh, The first phrase, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. That's out of Psalm 2. And I think we've mentioned that this this letter to the Hebrews uses the Old Testament about as much or more than any other book in our New Testament. So we're going to have a lot of Old Testament passages that come to bear here. But in Psalm 2... Um, the writer of Hebrews takes that statement, which was a statement about God and an earthly king. There was an immediate fulfillment, a coronation, an inauguration, an establishment of a king. That was the immediate context, but there's a dual fulfillment here that, according to the writer of Hebrews, applies to Jesus. And the Father is saying... This is my son, and I have begotten you. That word begotten, that is the hint that we're talking about a coronation here or an establishment of a king. Then that second phrase, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That's out of 2 Samuel 7, 14. Same idea, the father is affirming a uniqueness about the son that nothing else in all of creation possesses. As I mentioned, these uh, signal a progress of revelation. So there's a, there's a possibility of these having an immediate fulfillment in, in their context, but then there being another fulfillment that is bigger and greater. Now, that idea of the father affirming his son, um, in the Gospels we read about a statement, remember, at his baptism. The father said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, and then at the transfiguration, a similar statement, and then God tells uh, the guys to listen to him. What's interesting in both of those places is there's no mention of him being begotten. And, and you might wonder why that is. God's declaring, the Father is declaring that this is his son, but he doesn't mention his begottenness until we come to Acts 13. This is Paul. Speaking in a sermon, I want you to listen to what Paul says about this idea of the son being begotten by the father. He says, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, 
by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So his inauguration, the inauguration of Christ, took place when he sat down after his resurrection in the presence of the Father. That was the day that his inauguration took place and he officially took up his throne as son and then king. So this is all royal imagery here. Just imagine whatever you know about uh, a royal family and kings and queens and all of that. That's the setting that we're talking about here. Back to angels, they have no right to take a place like this for themselves. They, they're simply servants, stewards. They surround the throne room, but they never sit down. They never take that place of honor. And they cannot because they did not, could not, and will not do what only the Son was able to do on behalf of humanity. Let's keep going with the royal imagery in mind. The author of Hebrews shifts his focus to the sovereignty of the Son. Jesus is the King of kings. Look at verse 7. Of the angels, he says... He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is in the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is a direct quote of Psalm 45, verses 6 and seven. And the context here is a royal wedding. So we've had a throne room, a coronation, and now we're in a wedding context. The father is still speaking here, and notice that he speaks about the angels, but to his son. You could actually read it. Of the angels, he says, he makes angels, his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire, but to the son. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now think about that. What what did he just say? To the Son, your throne, O God. So the Father refers to the Son as God. Anybody that ever says to you, yeah, I mean, there's really just no indication that Jesus is God in our Bible. I mean, he certainly never claims it and all that. Just read the book of Hebrews. It's very clear that one of the most important things he's trying to say is Jesus is no mere man. He's no mere prophet. He's not just a a good teacher or a moral leader. He is God or all of this is hogwash. Psalm 104 says, he makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. Once again, angels, though they inspire fear and awe, they are servants of the king. He is superior to them, and they will obey his will 
just like wind, fire, waves, all of creation obeys the will of the king. And they do the same. In this passage, we're told that the son has an eternal throne and he rules his kingdom with uprightness, just like his father. In that way, he is the exact imprint of God the Father. Jesus is said to possess unquestionable deity. And I just want to remind us, we'll come back to this, but remember all of those threats? Well, what if you have God the Son, the King of Kings, on your side? Those threats take on a whole different look, don't they? Our faith finds some fuel that we just can't find anywhere else except in him. Now, the hints at royal coronation in verses 3 through 6 are stated very plainly here in verse 8. You might think of it this way, like father, like son. What is true of God is true of God the Father is true of the Son. The Father loves righteousness and hates wickedness. And guess what? No surprise. Jesus loves righteousness and hates wickedness. And uh, because of his nature, he has to promote the one and oppose the other. As a result of his nature being like that of his Father, he is anointed with gladness. There is an exaltation there. Again, something you would expect of an inaugurated king. He is the king of glory. The basis for him being established in that way goes back even further. And that's explained in verses 10 through 12. And you can write down in your notes, Jesus is the Lord of all creation. And there's an order here. So if Jesus is God then he is eternal like God, which means he existed before all of creation. And we're going to learn here that he was the one that spoke it into being. Verse 10, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Just jot down Psalm 102, 25 through 27. Once again, the Father is addressing the Son. He has been called the Son. He has been made a king, and he's been called God, and here he's called Lord. I don't know how much more plainly the Father can speak about his Son and his nature. He was present and active at creation. Jot down John 1, 1 through 3. And Colossians 1, 16 and 17, both of which refer to the Son as the Creator. And if He is Creator, then He is Lord of creation. All of it answers to Him without question. It's not as if the creation has an opinion. We all, ultimately, we all just do what the Lord wants us to do. This whole history will end just as God 
intended. Jesus can do that because he is the son, he is the king, and he is the creator. Now, one of the things that's so reassuring from the end of this passage is that while the son, the king, and the creator will change everything for the better, he never changes. And he will never come to an end. He is wonderfully immutable. That's a good theological word. You might just write that down. That means he will never change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is eternal, unending. We're never going to come to the end of our God. With that in mind, I want to go back to those threats that I mentioned at the beginning of this message, those reasons that Christians abandon their faith. And let's talk about the difference that the Son, the King, and the Creator, who is superior to angels, let's see the difference that He makes. Friendly fire, the Son is going to bring reconciliation to all of those broken relationships. There will be confession and renewal Personal loss, Jesus brings restoration. Relentless doubts, our faith is going to become sight. What we see in a mirror dimly, right? We're going to see face to face. That craving for prosperity, if you have entrusted your life to the king of glory, you get an inheritance. And that will dwarf anything that you could have possibly acquired in this life. Persistent sin, man, in that throne room, in the presence of Almighty God, we will be free. Free of the presence of sin, the penalty of sin, and the power of sin. And then finally, cultural pressure and persecution. In Christ, we have a safe refuge, a place of security where nothing and no one can separate us from the love of Christ. I want to read to you from Revelation 21 in closing. This would be a great reminder to you when you face those threats. But this is what Jesus is going to do when all things come to an end and he changes everything from old to new. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. New heavens, new earth. Those are good reasons to push back these threats that uh, seek to erode our faith. We can trust in Him. That's, that's this message of the letter to the Hebrews. Take a moment, if you would, and prayerfully ask the Holy Spirit to show you where you might feel threatened 
and how you might apply what we've looked at today, the superiority and the sufficiency of Jesus. How might you apply that to your life today? And then I'll pray to close us. Father, Son, and Spirit, we praise you. We need you. We are so fragile. We feel threatened in so many ways. But you are sufficient. Your grace is sufficient for anything that we will ever face. Lord, help us to hold fast to our faith in you. And Lord, would you give us fresh eyes to see the beauty, the magnificence, the power, the superiority, and the sufficiency of Jesus. And would you help us to walk confidently, not in our own abilities, not in our own intellect, not in our own resources, but Lord, fully dependent upon our Lord, the Son, the King, the Creator. Lord, I pray that would be so real to us that this world would just truly fade away. And we would be uh, light in the darkness until you return. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.